Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with Seth Hendershot, who is leading a musical life that's a bit different from the other people we've interviewed before. The small college town of Athens, Georgia is where Seth calls home, and from there he has a couple of touring gigs with singer-songwriter Randall Bramblett and pop classical violinist Kishibashi. But he's also the owner of Hendershots, a coffeehouse, bar, restaurant, and live music venue. Currently in its eighth year, Hendershots has become a fixture on the Athens music scene, and for a small town, Athens enjoys an outsized musical presence as the incubator for REM, drive-by truckers, and many more. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes, learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to patreon.com slash workingdrummer if you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going strong. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts and stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a you know kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. I also want to take a quick second here and let you know that I'm currently accepting writing clients. As some of you may know, I have a side hustle doing bios and other written content for musicians and bands. So if you or your band are in need of anything like that for your website, EPK, social media, press release, whatever, please hit me up. You can read samples at zachalbetta.com slash writing. That's Z-A-C-K-A-L-B-E-T-T-A dot com slash writing. And you can contact me at facebook.com slash Zach Albetta. So it was great to hear from Seth in this interview about uh, balancing his touring work 
and owning a business and the role he plays in developing and sustaining Athens both musically and civically. And don't worry, we also get to some drumming talk in there too. He's got two very different, very cool gigs going right now. So let's get to it with Seth Hendershot. First of all, tell me, did did you attend University of Georgia there in Athens? Is that what brought you to Athens? No, I uh, actually came here um, in 1998. Um, I had a bunch of friends that were going to school here. I had just come off a um, a six month house gig in Nome, Alaska, where I was doing like six nights a week of uh, covers at this really funny little bar um, in that town, and um, uh, was chasing a girl. Uh, my girlfriend was going here. My girlfriend at the time was going here, mm-hmm. and I had a bunch of buddies here and knew about the you know the music scene here. So um, I just came here for that. Right. And in, in 98, that was kind of, uh, that was like on, on the heels of, of REM and presidency of the United States of America and Athens was kind of putting itself on the map by that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, hotel was a big deal. They had just neutral milk hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, they, uh, they had just, I think they were just disbanding after um, the release of their record uh, in the airplane over the sea, mm-hmm. which uh, is one of my desert island picks. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I was kind of coming into Athens, and there was a lot of excitement here. It was really cool. It was yeah, a good time to be here. And and so at at that point, you're um, you you don't have designs on owning a venue or or any of any of what it, you've done since it, coming there. You were strictly a drummer looking to play yep exactly so what were your first moves when you got there um well uh, <clears throat> i moved in with a trumpet player friend of mine a guy named mike elam who now lives in hawaii uh mm-hmm. but he was te- he was finishing his master's uh, at uga um Probably not the good one to take out. He was finishing his master's at UGA and uh, had a house right in Five Points that he was renting and um, said I could move in with him. And we were doing some music together. Uh, The first thing I did musically was I met a guy named Tony Oscar, who's a percussionist still here in town. Um, And he was doing accompaniment for the UGA Department of Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, for the modern dance classes. So he got me in on that, made a little money doing that. And um, like three days into being here, a friend of mine introduced me to the guys in the band Fuzzy Sprouts who had literally just lost their drummer a week before he had quit. Mm-hmm. And they had some shows booked and were looking for somebody. And I went and auditioned with them and got that gig. And so started playing with them like almost immediately. Yeah. Like, ah, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect time. Uh, but yeah. then I realized, you know, like Athens is a bubble and like they were selling out or we were selling out shows at Georgia Theater and 40 Watt and places like that. But then as soon as we would travel anywhere, it was like, you know, 20 people. Right. People, you know. Right. It's it's an easy town to get lost in in that regard. Like, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I want to address that because Athens, like I've spent some time there and I've gotten a little bit of a feel for it. Um just talk about talk about Athens as a town because it is a small town, I think, with with a, a a much more vibrant music scene than most towns its size have. 
Certainly. So, you know, and I, I grew up in a similar town. I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is you oh, know, cool. its own, its own little bubble of, of art and music and culture. Um, so, you know, talk, talk about Athens in the nineties and, and Athens now, and, and, you know, the, the bubble nature of that town and the good and the bad that, that comes with it. Um, okay. Well, um, yeah. So like I said, when I got here and joined, um, you know, a locally popular band, it was easy to sort of get, you know, um, uh, it was easy to be, um, uh, I don't want to say fooled, but like sort of get wrapped up in that, like, wow, and we, like, we're kind of a local big deal. And you don't, when I first moved here, like I wasn't thinking we're just a local big deal. I was thinking, well, this band's a big deal, you know, everywhere they go. Right. And then as soon as we started touring, I realized quickly that, you know, oh, other markets haven't been built yet. And they spend a lot of time here and doing great things here. And um, there's a lot of adoration here, but but that's not the case when you go at it. And I think probably the case with a lot of bands, yeah. um, a lot of bands that make waves here and will get some national attention don't necessarily have that same adoration when they go, when they start touring and, and, and trying different markets, you know, uh, you get out of the Southeast into DC and New York and, um, New England, and then start going West. Like you realize quickly, like, unless your stuff is on the radio and college radio all around the U S um, you're not, you're not really pulling numbers like, like you do at home. Um, but, um, yeah. So like we said, like the REM had just done, um, God, what was their last record when I got here was out of time, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a huge deal, you know, seeing Michael Stipe and Mike Mills in town got people really excited and made them really nervous. And, um, (laughs) Uh, the elephant six collective was and like killing it at the 40 watt and killing it nationally really, um, uh, of Montreal was in its sort of infancy at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a lot of exciting music and stuff happening here. Um, I had it in my head that there was a gigging culture here as well. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple of jazz clubs and there was a couple of rock clubs and, and, uh, of course the frat bars and stuff that you could go make money at as a, as a working drummer, you know, which not, uh, I soon came to realize in this town, it's not really looked at as a, as a, um, viable means of making a, a living or is it really respected, hmm. um, as much as it is in a place like Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, the session guys are, you know, are all in bands, but they're also working, you know, doing right. weddings and cover bands and, and jazz gigs and pick up stuff and whatever where here it's like you're in a band right you you don't you have side projects and you do a lot of different things not i don't know i think there's a stigma that goes along with like working musician that doesn't translate in this town right there is Uh, a, a hired gun market there yeah and really it's because there's not a lot of disposable income here mm-hmm. um you can do cover bands and stuff at frat parties and that's great but that's great for like you know, four months out of the year. <laughs> right. Um, and then that dries up pretty quickly. And, and, and I'm speaking to the, that time period, late nineties, early two thousands. Like it just wasn't, that culture wasn't really in existence here. Right. Um, uh, which is why we lo- 
lost a lot of hired gun guys and we still continue to lose a lot of hired gun guys. Nobody wants to stay here because there's just not a lot of money to make here. Mm-hmm. Um, so those guys were all commuting from Athens to Atlanta and we're finally like, you know, I'm just going to Atlanta, man. Right. Uh, I'm just going to move to Nashville or I'm just going to move to LA or New York or wherever, mm-hmm. which is still the case. And, and, you know, we lose a lot of great musicians to that. Um, it's sort of the, the musical version of the white flight. <laughs> you think, man, if you stuck around, we could build it, but I right. get it. Like, yeah. You know, you just spent four years at university. Um, you're, you're trying to make your way and mm-hmm. get exposure and get noticed. And it's tough to do in a town where it's like, you know, band centric. Right. So, so you, you know, you, you lose a lot of great musicians. Um, but, but you also seem to, to hang on to some. Um, so there's, you know, there's gotta be something about Athens, about life in Athens that, um, that is attractive to people in general and to musicians, especially. I mean, you mentioned the fact that it's more of a musical culture where you're in a band, you know, you're not freelancing. Um, so, you know, it, it, it seems like a place where people, if people want to dedicate themselves to a project, it's a place that can incubate the project. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a great home base to get anywhere in the Southeast. You know, you're three hours from Charlotte, North Carolina, which leads you to an entire North Carolina run. Mm-hmm. You're, um, you know, a few hours away from the coast. Um, you can get down to Florida really easily. Like it's a great place to home base, not to mention it's a college town. So, uh, for the most part, rent is relatively cheap. Cost of living is relatively cheap. You don't have to make a lot of money. There's tons of service industry jobs, which anybody who's ever been in a band knows you need one of those. Um, so there's tons of that. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably what keeps people here more than anything is, um, cost of living is low the, um, sort of, um, eclectic culture of the town, you know, is really well accepted Mm -hmm. and in the South that can be tough to find. Um, it's, it's a blue dot in a sea of red essentially in in Georgia. So you're going to live in Georgia and you're an artist, you know, you lean to the left or whatever you generally live here or around it's the little satellite blue dot to the the big blue dot of atlanta (laughs) yeah 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 of what atlanta is yeah definitely right right um so speaking of uga you know that's that's just a monster of a school what is it like sixty thousand students or something like i guess now it probably is when i moved here i think it was thirty thousand and i think it's grown exponentially since then so, I mean, you know, the, the city of Athens and the University of Georgia have this kind of symbiotic relationship, right? I mean, the town is the college and the college is the town. Yeah, there's a weird disconnect that I think uh, in the last five years, uh, a number of us have been trying to tie it together. For example, the, the music school at UGA um, has never really... it. it in some cases, yes, but in most, for the most part, never really ties into the music scene. But in the last five years, there's been this push among, uh, um, you know, club owners and and just musicians who have graduated and are still here, and uh, people that are really interested in bridging that gap in the community um, have really been pushing for UGA music students to be in the clubs and around the scene, and for um, musicians that are in the clubs and around the scene to be more connected to the university, whether that's 
you know, taking private lessons with a, with a doctoral student at the university or going and doing, um, you know, uh, a, a, a guest appearance at Hodgson music hall or something like mm-hmm. that. Like it, we're seeing more of that now, which is really great. And I yeah. think it's, it's connecting the town and the university a little more. Yeah. It's a recurring theme on the podcast about how some, um, some college music programs have a great partnership with the uh, with the professional scene and the artistic cultural scene in their city. And, you know, there are bridges built between those two things so that graduates of the music program don't necessarily have to leave when they graduate. You know, there's an there's an yeah. infrastructure of, of arts and culture in the city and they can use, you know, their time in school to get plugged into it. Um, right. You know, we usually talk about that in the context of uh, cities or, or colleges that are in bigger cities. Um, you know, I, I went to University of Missouri, Kansas City, which has a great partnership, and Kansas City has a great music scene. Um, but Kansas City is quite a bit bigger than Athens. We talk about it in Nashville and L.A. and Chicago and all these towns. Um, but it it sounds like you're you're uh, – you're trying to get the the music scene and the college to feed off of each other in a way that they can sustain each other rather than yeah. being separate. And I think, I think what that takes is what we were talking about earlier. It's just a, a way for those uh, graduates or soon to be graduates to see some kind of future in this town in mm-hmm. music, right. you know, not just like, okay, I'm going to apply for the band director position at the local high school or anything <laughs> right. like that. But like, I want to, go out and be a working musician. I want to play clubs. I want to put on, you know, uh, special concerts, you know, outdoor festivals, that kind of stuff. But there's got to be um, motivation there. There's got to be, you know, income right. happening for them to feel like, you know, I'm not going to graduate with my, you know, master's in uh, vocal performance and then go work at the grit so that I can teach <laughs> private lessons and occasionally once every six months sing, you know, right. like, they really want to get out there and do stuff. Yeah. Um, and in a place like Kansas City or L.A. or Chicago or, or Nashville, you can and you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hustle. You'll work hard. But I think Athens is in a transitional period right now and the growing pains are apparent. Like we're seeing more and more, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? More mixed use development like what we're in and also more student housing slash condos being built downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, more. Uh, large scale chain restaurants are coming in downtown. Urban Outfitters is downtown or, you know, large scale retail um, and stuff like that definitely scares locals. And, yeah. And with with good reason. I mean, we're not in a financial situation now where um, we can afford that kind of stuff to come in because we can't a we can't afford it. We can't buy it. <laughs> right. And B, it's driving up the cost of rent. Mm-hmm. So everybody's having like, whoa, what's happening? Like, there's there's more big money stuff coming into a town that has no big money, mm-hmm. um, but on the uh, sort of well following those things are going to be more retirees and more hopefully tourists and more UGA students not wanting to you know uh, get out of get out of town as quickly as they get that. that we're going to stick around a little bit longer and try and build something here. And the community will grow and the city will grow. Um, there's certainly plenty of land. Um, and I, 
I think infrastructure to make that happen. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's just, we're in the the middle of it right now. And so it's, it's sort of the, the growing pains. It's the sucky part, you know, it's the part nobody wants to deal with. Right. Right. And I would, I would imagine, (coughs) I would imagine there's some, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you don't want rents to go up. You don't want, um, you know, uh, artists or other low income people to be driven out of Athens, uh, right. to be priced out. But at the same time, the, you know, the infrastructure that is going to sustain artists and musicians to make a living, um, kind of requires some of that higher end, more established, uh, investment in, in infrastructure and, and, um, housing and all that, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, I'm, done it and it's 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 totally doable i think uh in this climate now too um people are more aware and conscientious of just that you know uh low-income uh residents not only artists but also people that are working um service industry jobs and don't do art or people that are working at the chicken plant or people that are working at the you know whatever the mall that mm-hmm. is slowly, you know, that whole retail world is slowly going under. Um, I think, I think the community is more conscientious of, of them, um, as this growth happens. So maybe we'll see some kind of, you know, on the, when we get to the other side of it, maybe there'll be some sort of balance right. that will make it all okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I might be living in a dream world too, man. It, it might just be this cold blooded takeover, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just hoping, hopeful for the best right. and certainly hopeful that results in my place being a, uh, a benefiting from it, you know. So speaking of your place, uh, when and why in the hell did you see fit <laughs> to become the owner operator of a, of a music venue of your very own? Um. So I joke with my wife, um, you know, your parents always ask you when you decide to be a musician or an artist of any sort or an English major or a sociology major or whatever in college, you know, what, what's your backup plan? Like, what are you going to actually do to make money? Right. Uh, my, my answer to my parents all growing up was always like, oh, well, there's, I'll be fine. There's no way I'm not going to make money at this. This is, this is what I was born to do. I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, and now I joke with my wife that like, you know, my backup career to my drumming career is <laughs> owning a coffee shop. And my backup to that is a stand-up comedian. And my backup to that is a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of backup plans. None of them are sustainable, nor will any of them ever make money. But um, yeah, I basically in 2009, I, I've been working coffee since 1995 when Starbucks was this fledgling little company that wanted to have 2000 stores by the year 2000. Um, I got in with them in Atlanta, uh, worked there for three years, then went to Alaska, did that house gig. I actually got a coffee gig when I was out there just to do something to do during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't become a raging alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I got back, I immediately went to work at Jittery Joe's while I was gigging and trying to establish myself in Athens. Um, so it's always been coffee as a side job. Um, certainly always done live music ever since high school. Um, and, um, uh, in 2009, I had the opportunity to take over this coffee shop that was inside the Jittery Joe's roasting warehouse. 
And so I went and did that. And, um, the longer I did it, the more I realized like, wow, I really kind of know this business pretty well. Mm -hmm. And, um, maybe I could, you know, do this because gigs weren't coming in. You know, I was doing a lot of cover band stuff. I was doing weddings. Um, I had just gotten off the road with Blueground Undergrass and that was really cool, but only lasted a couple of years. The Mm -hmm. money was good, but it started to wane at the end. And I was just like, well, and, and not to mention we had uh, two kids. So I got married, uh, in two, we had our first child in 2003, which changed everything for me. Right. Uh, in the best way. Right. Uh, but certainly got, things got more real really fast. So I was 27. Um, we had our first child and then got married the next year and got a little place. I was, uh, there's a lot more to this story, but I'll give you the brief version. Uh, 2004, got a little place, a little duplex in Athens with our, our child and, um, went to work on raising her. Then I got a gig with blue ground, started touring a little bit, you know, it was all weekend stuff. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't too tough to be away, but it was, it was kind of hard. Um, and then we had our second child in 2007 and I'm still, you know, teaching lessons, working coffee, touring when I can, playing in cover bands, playing in wedding bands, just doing all the things that you have to do. All of the above. All the, my (laughs) wife is, uh, trying to finish her undergrad up at UGA. Um, so we're making positive steps, you know, forward, trying to make a better life and whatever for our kids and for us. Um, and we moved into, uh, we bought our first house in 2008 mm-hmm. and it was in this neighborhood forest Heights. And at the end of the neighborhood, there was this service station, um, a two car garage service station that was dormant. Um, a restaurant had just gone in next door, Transmetropolitan, um, in a gas station across the street. And I had been talking about opening my own place for a while, um, just cause I liked the business and I was like, man, you know, maybe I can just do a music venue and then I can play there and do the coffee and I'll make a lot of money and it'll right, be great. Right. <laughs> uh, she was like, she was very encouraging. She was like, you should check that place out. And, um, so I finally did and it all just kind of came together. I wrote a business plan. I hit up a bunch of banks and got turned down for loans left, you know, left and right. And then was singing my blues to a friend at a, in this workout group I was in. And he was like, man, we can help you out. And he and his wife lent, um, lent me some money. Oh, wow. And I had a partner that was, uh, I had a partner that had a very successful bar downtown that wanted in and he brought some money in. So he and I opened, uh, the first Hendershot's location in 2010. Um, and I, 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 like I said, I was ready to get out of the wedding and cover band thing. So mm-hmm. I was all too happy to leave that. So I didn't play for like three months and I started to realize how bad that is for my psyche. <laughs> right. uh, so I started <laughs> playing with some friends again. And then, um, a bass player friend of mine had been sitting in with Randall Bramlett's band, um, just covering Randall's bass player. And at that time, Randall's drummer, Jerry, got uh, vertigo really bad, got really sick. Hmm. Uh, and Randall started calling me to fill in for him, and which is like the most unfortunate way to get a gig. Like, hey, man, our drummer has this incurable disease and he can't play drums. You want to come fill in? I right. Like, I, I hate it for him, but <laughs> yeah. OK. Yeah. You can't so, say no, man. It's Yeah. 
and I heard immediately about, just bri- briefly i heard about a guy in la I, I don't think i even knew him and maybe this was just like an urban myth but there was some guy who like once a week he would go on google and search uh search drummer injured or drummer killed <laughs> And, like, and see who it was and see. <laughs> That's a way to do it. That's <laughs> a way to do it. But like you said, we never say no. And I told, you know, my wife that that's been the mantra since the beginning. I think one of my first teachers, private teachers, was like, just take everything. Yeah. Just say yes to every gig. Mm-hmm. And I did for a long time, whether it paid or whether I had to pay or whether, <laughs> you know, clothes required. I don't care if I'm playing in the rain. I'm happy. You know, I'm just right. I'm playing. Yeah. Um, and then as you get older and, and a little more jaded, you start to like be a little more choosy about the gigs and, you know, what pays what and whatever. Yeah. And there's, uh, this, there's but, this endless debate, but, you know, among musicians about like whether or not musicians should play for free and under what circumstances should they play for free. And I, I I'm sick of the debate because I think there there is a time and a place for everyone to play under the circumstances that they can tolerate. Um, yeah. And, you know, when when you're younger, like you said, you you say yes to every single gig and the older you get, the more you say no to. And it's you know, it's kind of the the cycle of a of a musician's career. So, you know, 55 year old musicians bitching at 20 year olds on Facebook about don't play for free. It lowers the market and blah, blah, blah. It's like, man, you you were playing for free when you were 20. Uh, Yeah. Just (laughs) let everybody do their thing in their time. Especially at that stage, I think at that stage, um, I would I would disagree with that fifty five year old staunchly because at that stage, it's not affecting anybody's market. These guys are, you know, coming up and they're not getting um, high profile gigs or they're not getting regular gigs that are free. They're just getting, you know, things are just coming up and, and you take them as as they come in. Mm-hmm. But uh, to me, what's drive what drives down the market are the fifty five to sixty year you know, whatever retiree, uh, retired lawyers and doctors and guys who, you know, have a, like a hundred guitar, guitar collection and play some blues and they get their buddies together and they start playing at these clubs for free because they don't need the money. Right. And that destroys the rest of it for, you know, Mm -hmm. the market for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. People just all of a sudden get used to, Oh, I don't have to pay to go to this show. Um, and you know, the music's fine. I can talk during it and they don't get offended, you know? What I mean? right. <laughs> like it's and not- even, in, even in the private market, like unlike, you know, 20 year olds, those, those 55 year old lawyers have a bunch of 55 year old rich buddies who, yeah. who can now get their parties and their events and whatever, like they can play at those for little or no money. Um, whereas, you know, people, people with that kind of money should be paying handsomely for a band at their at their party or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I mean, eventually all that kind of it reveals itself. Like, you know, your, your, your buddy's band isn't going to be able to learn September by earth. Twenty Five. like, they're just not going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I guarantee it. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Or whatever it is on your song list that you want. Like, you know, the, the, the guns, the hired guns, the guys that study music and, and play music all the time. Um, and will charge you are the guys that'll learn all the songs. Right. You know? Right. It'll all reveal itself, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I I, uh, I don't know um, why it happens like this, but it's always like when, for me anyway, when I'm not when I'm when I pivot or try and do something else, 
is always when the call comes in, you know, and <laughs> Randall, Randall's got a, a storied career. He's played, you know, he had a great solo career in the seventies. He also played with uh, Greg Allman's band and cowboy at a making. He was part of the Capricorn movement. Um, in the late eighties, he, or nineties, he got on with Steve Winwood and was in part of traffic, like their utility guy playing organ and right, sax. Right. And, and also um, like Bonnie Raitt and Levon, right? He's written songs for Bonnie Raitt and played with her a bunch, played a bunch with Levon, mm-hmm. um, written songs for a number of people and with a number of people. Um, so when that call comes in, like you don't turn that one down, you right. know, you don't even ask pays, you just take it. Right. Yeah. And, and he's a professional, of course, he's going to take care of you. And Randall is easily by and uh, far and above one of the best band leaders I've ever worked for and with, mm-hmm. um, shares everything he's super transparent there's no guessing when it comes to like you know oh am i going to make any money this weekend or is the music going to be fun this weekend or are we all going to get along this weekend like it's all going to happen right it's the perfect triangle you know gigging triangle where the the hang the money and the music are all there yeah that's and the dream. Uh, it's the dream and yeah. they become few and far between um i've been fortunate to have two when i least Expected it, and certainly when I was least prepared for it, because mm-hmm. um, I was trying to focus all my efforts on opening a club, and then all of a sudden I've got these like you know mid-level like high you know semi-high-profile gigs, and and they're they're paying, and wow, you know this is it, this is all I wanted to do, yeah, ever. everything all at once, and now I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, what possessed me to open a club is, uh, weddings and cover bands. I just got tired of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a lame hustle that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. And I mean, to me, when you, you know, when you first start doing that, the money's really attractive and the songs are kind of fun. And like after the 200 millionth time you play brown eyed girl, you're like, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. I'm done with this. Right. Your $300 is not enough <laughs> for me to want to do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just opened the club in hopes that I could at least establish a better life for my family. You know, my now is, um, finished, well, working on her dissertation. She's a PhD candidate. She's got a full-time job. She's killing it. She's super smart. She's wow. great. Um, she's been supportive. What, what is the her whole field? Time. PhD in what? Um, she's in SPIA, the school for political and international affairs. Wow. Um, her focus is in international affairs and her dissertations on uh, prostitution legalization and human trafficking. So wow, she's yeah, she's busy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's been awesome, and she, you know, she's my muse. Like she doesn't let me get away with with bullshit. You know, she she'll call me out if I'm if I'm doing some music that she's not. She knows I don't like, and she doesn't like. She's like, why are you, you know, compromising mm-hmm. like. but like Randall, she loves Randall's stuff. She loves Kishibashi stuff. Like she's, she's on board with, with that stuff. And that's the stuff I really enjoy doing. Yeah. And it's, it's great to have a, a a partner in, in your career who can, um, you know, both support what you want to do, but hold you accountable to do it the best you can. And exactly, you know, um, we've, we've talked about on the podcast before I've talked about my wife a lot on the podcast and, um, it's, you know, th- those of you single people out there, you need to find someone who, who loves what you do and wants you to do more of it and wants you to do it better. Not just, right. not just tolerate it. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Be transparent with your goals to <laughs> make sure no surprises right. later on right, after right. you're married. Like, by the way, I want to go on the road all the time. Like, <laughs> that ain't going to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Hendershots is currently in its second location, right? That's right. And that's the only one I've ever seen. I've played there a couple times with with Ansley Stewart. Um, and it's 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 a great room. Like, talk about Thanks. talk about the vision that you know is 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 its current iteration kind of the vision that you had, or is there is there more? Um, there's certainly more. It's, I'm always um, I much to my my brother is uh, my business partner now. Um, it's been you know a crazy long road. We've been open seven years total. We've been in. Mm, this will be year eight, actually. And then we'll be in this location. This will be year five. Once we hit July, it'll be our fifth year at this location, our eighth year open, um, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yeah, I think like my initial vision was small, intimate little room, you know, play some jazz trio stuff, get some songwriters in there just on the weekends. It'll be fun. When we moved, that was a probably 1400 square foot room. This is a 3,500 square foot room Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's so, um, um, versatile. Like I've done fashion shows here. People have gotten married in here. We've done, you know, tons of private parties, DJs work here, you know, uh, with the dance floor and then the live music scene, like we'll do anything from four piece punk bands to, three piece tube and throat singing groups to, you know, uh, you know, five piece jazz ensembles, nine piece horn funk bands. Like uh, we've, we've been and and solo singer songwriters. Like right. it's been great to yeah, just yeah. kind of do all these different things. It's all the music I love. Um, and, uh, I, it's, it's, um, I always walk into it. Never, satisfied with like all right we got it let's just roll with it you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. we can always make it better every time i go and do a show at a club i'm looking for like you know what are the things that i love about this place like if you've ever been to um saturn in birmingham alabama i have not you played that room no one of the guys from i think manor astro man opened that club and it is one of the finest rooms in the southeast the green room alone like you could live there it's amazing <laughs> if you ever get the opportunity to play there jump on it because it's a great room they they just they really roll it out for the artists mm-hmm. which feels good as an artist then uh other rooms i'll be looking at like how is this for the concert goer like there's a place in um i think it's lexington kentucky that splits the room with a curtain and it's awesome for the listener they don't have to deal with bar patrons and restaurant patrons, you know, uh, talking over right. their meal and right. chewing and drinking and glasses clinking. Like there's this sound, you know, pretty thick theater curtain that, that blocks in all the sound for the live room. Yeah. You can fit 150, 200 people in there seated and there's a restaurant in the back. So if you need to, you know, through the curtain, it's great. Right. So those kind of things I'm always – I'm glad to be on both sides of the business for because I get a lot of cool ideas from going to rooms like that. And I, I'm constantly trying to um, transform this place into that kind of experience for both the artist and the listener where everybody has a great time. Everybody has a great experience. Right. Um, 
you know, the other side to that is if I'm on the road, I don't have the opportunity to be here to make sure it comes off like that. Right. So I'm, I'm always conflicted, like, God, I should be at the club right now. Or when I'm at the club, I'm like, God, I should be on the road right now. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult, but it's, uh, totally worth it. And it's fun. Um, yeah. One, one of but, the things that, that really impresses me about Hendershots is, is that, and you, you kind of touched on both of them. You, you managed to do two things that, that I've seen a lot of venues try to do and fail spectacularly at. One, <laughs> one is, is making the transition every day from coffee shop to music venue. Um, because, you know, like I, I imagine, I haven't been there early in the morning, but I imagine, you know, the Hendershots day you know, you open for coffee, there's people in there getting their morning thing, there's people working all through the afternoon, there's students coming and going, and then in the evening, people start showing up for dinner and drinks, and then the music starts, and people are hanging until 11. Um, yeah. So I've, I've seen a lot of venues, like, try to make that transition, and it's either, it's either one or the other. Like, either the daytime thing is hopping, or the music thing is hopping, but one is suffering. And the other thing that is amazing is that, like you mentioned, your live music schedule is all over the road in the best possible way. Um, so it, are those are those happy accidents or were you super intentional about making those making both of those things happen? Did you hope for the best in, the, in that regard? Um, to a certain extent, hope for the best. Yeah. And then um, and then some of it is it, I mean, most intentional just because, like I said, I've seen it. Um, a lot of different perspectives, you know, a lot of different clubs and seeing it done a lot of different ways. Um, and, and I'm constantly trying to reinvent it myself. Like mm -hmm. I've realized in the last year that the best thing for us to do with a, certainly with a larger show is close at five 30, just shut down, get everybody out of here, transform the place. Yep. There are many nights like our jazz nights where I don't do that cause we're not charging a cover. So there's no real, we want some hangover. Mm -hmm. You know, we're hoping that people are working on their computers all day and are like, I can't write anymore. I need a glass of wine. Oh, wow. A jazz trio. How about that? Right. I'm right. just going to hang and watch. Yeah. Um, cause you know, bodies in the room as always, uh, is better to play for than none. Yes. Um, but then, you know, you reach and we can touch on this, but, uh, then you reach that, that, uh, um, conflict of, do we charge cover at the door and, and hope the band makes money or do we just let everybody in for free? And then, you know, I eat that whatever. And, um, anyway, that's a whole different, uh, ball of wax. Yeah. But, you're uh, kind of, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Right. <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough. And, and, uh, you know, some nights we're super lucky where, um, the daytime business was great. The nighttime business is great. You know, mm -hmm. some days it is like coffee strong and it's carrying the whole thing. And, and, you know, the internet's working great and, and there's tons of people in there. And then nighttime will have this amazing band come in and nobody's there. Right. Um, and then sometimes, you know, the whole day sucked. And then, uh, you know, this gypsy jazz outfit will come in and everybody happened to hear about it and is showing up in yeah. droves yeah. to see it. It saves us. Um, so I think, uh, you know, part of my design of this place was I know I can't survive on coffee because uh, there's six Jittery Joes in town. There's two other uh, mom and pop coffee shops. There's three Starbucks in Athens. Like, mm -hmm. there's no way I'm going to compete enough to make my living doing coffee from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever. Right. Uh, so it was a, I knew that Octane, um, Back in the mid 2000s, Octane had started doing coffee shop and bar in Atlanta. And I thought mm -hmm. that was 
brilliant. I was like, whoa. And then what if you added music venue in there? You know, then people want to drink and they want to stay and they want to see and I can play there, you know, right. so <laughs> some selfish, some selfish uh, motivation in there as well. But um, I think offering the three now plus the food, um, our menu is definitely uh, upgraded since we opened. Mm hmm. Um, just offering all those things. It's sort of a one-stop shop for folks. And we do have folks stay here all day into the night. Right. Um, but I think the transition just sort of organically happens. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as my door kids start walking around with their drawers full of money and a <laughs> credit card swiper and start going, Hey, are you here for the show? Like people just naturally either like, no, don't, and they pack up and head out. Or they're like, wow, I didn't know there was a show tonight. Yeah, $5, that's great. Or $10, that's great. Right. I want to see some music. And they'll pay. Mm -hmm. And then the people that were coming for the show initially, they just start to flock in. So right. it's a lot of it's organic and happy accident. Um, but it's all intentional in the flow, Right. I guess. Um, like it, this is the way I wanted it and intended it to be was, yeah, where your hangout study spot, write your thesis and your decision to meet your friends and have political discussion all day. And then at night, just like unwind and deep, de you know, like totally, uh, what's the word? Like unplug, uh, unplug man from, yeah. from all that everyday stuff and be entertained. And like our tagline, um, or at least I've been trying to push our tagline is just listen. Um, so we're trying to cultivate the, listening audience right. rather than the band up there background. That's great. I'm going to hit on this girl or <laughs> I'm going to continue my discussion about the big game Monday while this band's playing, you know, like we're right. trying really hard to cultivate awareness and uh, empathy really. Um, and just, uh, just being a part of an, a moment. Right. Um, rather than, uh, just being disconnected from what's happening, you know, on stage or whatever. We've gone about 40 minutes here and, and managed to not talk about drumming too much at all. So, uh, wow, guys. I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear about, uh, uh, the gigs that are keeping you busy. Uh, namely, we talked a bit, a little bit about Randall, uh, but also Kishibashi. Um, so talk about your, your drumming life. Um, okay. So yeah, I've, I've been super fortunate, uh, more recently. Um, but I've had a lot of really great experiences leading up to this. I was, I played in and around after high school. Um, I did drum and bugle corps for a couple years and oh, winter guard international spirit of Atlanta or I sure did. Okay, yeah. Cool. I was two years. I did blue nights in 99. No kidding. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I was out by 97. Um, but, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I love cool. Blue Nights. Uh, Little Green Men. That was like the <laughs> mid-90s Blue Nights. Like, right, uh, yeah. Jeff Queen. Jeff Queen was in, in Blue Nights at that point. Yep. I was a total marching band nerd. Loved it. Ate was, it all up. I was too for a time, man. I thought – I went to a little uh, – it was a big high school in Santa Fe, but we had a little marching band of like 75 kids. And man, I I tried to turn that line into the fucking Blue Nights. I was yes. like, I was so serious about it. And, and it, like, it, Whoa, it, man. It, it sucked. we sucked, we but sucked pretty bad. Then you but got I, to march in the drum, in the big show. Yeah, I did. I did. Nice. That's awesome. Um, well, I did. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years. I did winter guard international indoor drumline. Did you ever get into that at all? Or? I didn't. Um, but I, I know a lot of people who did and, and yeah. yeah. 
So that was a huge part of my beginning, like post high school life. And I was teaching high school drum lines as, as you do when you're in drum corps. All you want to do while you're a member of a drum corps is be the guy that gets to walk around with a backpack that's got a drum key and some, you know, drumsticks and a drum pads from Hardeman's and, you know, a one hitter <laughs> and all the shit like, you know, that all those guys did and had and wear your tour jacket and just right. be yep. visible. Yep. And I got to do that. And that was <laughs> awesome. And I taught a lot of great with a lot of great high school uh, programs under a a lot of really amazing band directors and um, learned a ton about music. That was really my sort of formal education in drumming. Um, I didn't get to go to school for it. I, I, when we had our first child and I was living in Athens, I, I jumped back into school. I went to Athens Tech trying to get some core stuff and uh, just never really finished. My wife was was kicking my ass. She was doing so much better you do school, I'll go work. And, and <laughs> she was also working and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. She's amazing. But um, anyway, so I never, that was sort of my formal education. And uh, I just, I was trying to gig as much as possible in and around Atlanta. Um, I moved to Austin for six months and was in the music scene there a little bit. Hmm. Like I said, I did the, um, the Nome Alaska gig, house gig. Uh, to me, if you ever want a woodshed and just like really work on your skills, take a weird obscure house gig somewhere for a number of months and you'll be playing horrible cover music for people that really don't give a shit. They're just drunk. And, um, but, but on the off time, like I was just, I was playing and playing and playing and practicing and practicing. And, you know, it was, it was sort of my college, you know what I mean? Right. It was a great time for me to figure that out. I learned how to sing and play at the same time. Um, and, uh, learned a lot about life and people and, um, just kind of, I grew there yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. then I came to Athens and was gigging here, touring with the Fuzzy Sprouts, um, which was a, like a sort of a punk funk power trio turned quartet. And we toured around the U.S. We did a couple of big three, four week tours in a van, you know, yeah. like you should. It's <laughs> old, like you should totally suffer and sleep on people's floors and, and, you know, eat donuts from the gas station for breakfast. And it's all the crap, man. It's great. Oh, Make zero money. <laughs> yeah. That was, those were, those were, uh, sweet, nostalgic, uh, romantic days, but I'm glad they're behind me. Yes. Indeed. Um, and then, um, and then I caught on with, um, Blueground Undergrass in the mid 2000s. They had just, uh, Blueground came around. Uh, that's Jeff Mosier's band. He's mm -hmm. a banjo, electric banjo player and, and traditional banjo player. Great guy and a great singer and storyteller and, um, player. And he, um, you know, he was in the ARU mix when that was all going down and, and really good friends with Colonel Bruce. So I felt like I was getting exposure to the Atlanta scene a little bit, learning those names, um, at Jeff Sipe, met Jimmy Herring, you know, all those guys yeah. that were all part of that, like the, the superheroes of the Atlanta music right, scene, right. uh, got exposed to those guys. Um, then after that ended, it became weddings and, and, uh, and cover bands and and I, I had some great moments and played with some amazing guys who are still my friends to this day and I love them but um we all agreed like it just that's the the pits you know you got to do it and it's better to make money doing music that way than to get a job in a cubicle and play music on the weekends I think right. yeah um for that's, sure that's in the eye of the beholder you mm -hmm. know like that's that's up to you like I, I went to a clinic 
uh, a life changing clinic actually for uh, this saxophone player from Chicago named Ken Vandermark. Um, and he brought Hamid Drake, who's an amazing Chicago drummer, and uh, what's his name? Kent Kiesler or uh, I can't remember the bass player's name, but they're all Chicago guys. Mm-hmm. But Vandermark um, was a free jazz guy and, um, you know, did standard stuff, but, but mostly his thing was out on at Coleman, like just total avant-garde music. Right. And he did it better than anybody I've ever heard. And it was, it, it made so much sense when I heard it, mm-hmm. uh, when you see it live, you see these guys interacting, it was just, it was life changing for me. And his big, um, point he made during his clinic was, man, I got a job at a BP station, third shift, so that I didn't have to do weddings and, and, um, you know, private parties and all this like stiff stuff that was just making me miserable and, and basically leaving me no time to be creative and do my art. So I sort of took that to heart, um, and stopped doing the weddings and stuff and, and really started to buckle down and open the business right. and, you know, went into an insane amount of debt and just stress. <laughs> the stuff that goes along with learning business. Um, and then, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get the call from Randall. Um, I went out and, um, did a few shows with him. And then, um, as I said, Jerry, um, Hanson, his drummer slash producer, Jerry's an amazing engineer as well as an amazing drummer, um, got to the point where he couldn't tour anymore. Um, in, in the, certainly in the van. Mm-hmm. Um, so he stepped uh, away from it. And I sort of jumped in and I've been with Randall the last seven going on eight years now. Wow. I've seen a couple of different people come and go. The most recent incarnation has been me, Randall, Michael Steele on bass and the great Nick Johnson from oh, Atlanta yeah. on guitar. Yep, Johnson. Um, so he's been, yeah, man, bumper. <laughs> he's been with us the last five years and I, my, uh, he's Nick, He's opened my eyes to a lot of new music, um, and he's such a young guy, but so talented and so smart. And and uh, he partners in crime on the road. Like we'll just we'll always hang after the gig and talk music and yeah, drink beers and just pal around. And Nick just um, Nick sets music. Nick sets music on fire, man. He like there is there's no. It's he's either, so excited. About it. It's either like not playing or fifth gear. He's, <laughs> you know, if you get yeah. on stage with him, yeah. you're going to really? get a fire lit under you really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually it's coming. And and that's one of the things I was reminded of and had been taught, but had a hard time putting into practice was that sort of wait for it approach, you know, mm-hmm. doing the minimal stuff, doing the stuff that supports the song up until like it's handed over to you to like go. Right. And then you go, like you go full on, yeah. you know, it's not a, it's not a, a proving ground, the whole song, you know, and mm-hmm. we got into a rut where the four of us were really just playing for each other. And Randall realized it pretty quickly and was, you know, put the kibosh on that. So guys, <laughs> you know, just let's, we got, you know, we're all having fun, but nobody out there, it's not translating. Right. You, know, you guys are all playing notes for each other and throwing these licks in and looking at each other and laughing and having a good time. But it's not it's not entertaining people, which is our, one of our many purposes. You know, we are there to create art and make an experience and be creative and fulfill ourselves. But we're also there to, to help people unplug and entertain people and turn people on, you know, and make them think or make them dance or make them happy. Right. Um, this is, this is, this is their, this is their night out. It's not just our inside joke. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they paid, you know, 20, $25 to be here. So you might want to do, 
that. <laughs> for them. You might want to play for them a little bit. Right. right. Um, so a few years into that, we had the we had the opportunity to go on tour with Bonnie Raitt, and we did two and a half weeks with her, which was oh, amazing cool. to see that level of production and mm-hmm. um, just see how like the big dogs operate, man. And she's amazing. And she's as sweet as she could be. She hung out with us, had dinner with us every night. Mm. Um, it was all like catered meals, and it just it was super posh and nice. And <laughs> I can see how uh, anybody would get seduced by that and just want that to be their thing. I certainly was. I was like, this is all I want. This right. is all I want to do. You know? <laughs> um, and I knew that from a very early age. I want to live the dream all the time. <laughs> all the time. Can't I just live the dream all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we got back from that and, you know, kept doing our thing. Um, I got to record on the last record, uh, with those guys and mm-hmm. it's a, a really fine record. I'm super proud of it and happy about that. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, I had a trio for a long time that played here called the old school trio. It was me and Jason Fuller and Carl Lindbergh. Um, and we did just a bunch of fun stuff that we love to do. We wrote, and we played stuff that we loved, like obscure seventies funk songs. That did a lot of vocal harmony stuff. Um, and then talk for a second about uh, uh, talk for a second about Kishibashi because that is just a cool, bizarre uh, act that I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Okay. So um, I had mentioned of Montreal earlier. Um, of Montreal is probably one of the longest running Athens bands um, and has produced you know, a number of offshoots, um, out of it. It's the brainchild of Kevin Barnes, who's the Athens resident. It's mm-hmm. a great band. Well, he picked up K Kishibashi, um, in 2011, I think 10 or 11. And K was playing violin and singing with that production. And then he also had a gig with Regina Spector and um he had the opportunity to open up solo for regina and for of montreal and did it and just people just ate it up mm. um k is a japanese american he was born here his parents immigrated here from japan they're both university professors um k grew up uh he would tell you like a typical asian american kid had <laughs> suzuki violin right you know was immersed in um uh, you know, all the, all the, uh, educational things that you would imagine two college professor parents would put their kid through. Um, so he's, he's insanely smart and he's super sweet and, um, incredibly talented musician, but he went to, uh, Cornell for a little bit and then was like, I just want to do music, joined up Montreal, opened for them and Regina Spector got a lot of accolades for that. And so decided I'm going to do a solo career towards solo for a couple years and then his second album was uh, his first album was was like widely regarded in the indie indie pop world um his second album came out and he put a band together i had just moved into this location it was 2013 he called me after getting a recommendation i guess i was recommended by a couple of people that we had that were mutual friends he called me and was like hey man i'm going to tour for this album and I'm putting together a band. I usually do solo, but I really want a band for this. Um, can you do it? And I met with him and talked about it and, and I wasn't sure if it was like a weekend thing or what. And he was talking about, you know, months at a time, like five weeks, six week tours for that year. And I was just like, I just moved. 
My youngest is three. My oldest is seven. My wife's ready in the PhD program. Like no way. Yeah. There's no way I can do it. Yeah. And he heard that and was totally cool. And he got Philip Mayer, who was, uh, then an Athens drummer, now a New York drummer, who's totally killing it in New York. Um, and they did great. They had like two years together doing all that, did Letterman, did like some really big, um, shows. Mm -hmm. And then Philip moved and coincidentally, I started teaching Kay's daughter solo when she was nine, um, started teaching her drum lessons and Kay would sit in on those drum lessons and just kind of hang out. And then he put out, he went to LA while you know, I was teaching her one day and he was like, yeah, man, I'm getting ready to go to LA and start recording this new record. And, um, ha- he's like, I got Matt Chamberlain on Ooh. the, on the record. I was like, what? <laughs> so I'm thinking, wow, man, this guy's like, he's off, yeah. Yeah, off and running. Like yeah. Matt's going to do that record and then be like, he's going to be his touring guy. I'm sure he'll have this huge, you know, LA rock band. Um, as it turns out, that was just a studio thing. Um, and it's, the album's called Sonderlust and Matt's performance on it is impeccable. Like it's <laughs> so good. Anybody looking for a new drum record of Matt Chamberlain's to listen to, check out Kishibashi Sonderlust. There's a plug. Um, Done. so he came back from that, did the release, said, Hey man, I'm going to tour and I want to ask you again. Cause I know maybe you're in a little bit better position this time. Will you go? And he called me in June and the tour was, no, he called me in May. The tour was in October. Um, so I went home and talked to my wife and was like, look, it's a bus, it's national, it's amazing music. Everybody's cool. You know, three out of four of the guys in the band are married. It's not gonna be a bunch of crazy hanky panky going on. Like (laughs) it's going to be fun. You know, I, I don't know if this opportunity I'm 40 now, you know, I don't know if this opportunity is ever going to come around again. And she was like, just do it we'll figure it out. Yeah. And so October came and I went and did actually, I did a week long tour with him in June around, uh, Tennessee and Ohio. Like we did, we did Nashville, uh, Knoxville, Chattanooga and Cincinnati or something like that. We just did a little quick four run deal. Right. Um, and had a great time. I got food poisoning. Knoxville show. That you was got fun. food poisoning. <laughs> Yeah, like right before we went on stage, oh, uh, no. we had went to eat like uh, Thai, and I got the green curry chicken in Knoxville. <laughs> so warning, yeah, don't get anything that's you know steer, don't get chicken. Steer clear of the green curry chicken in Knoxville. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I brought a bucket on stage. Like I thought I was gonna die. Like oh. I was at the lights and everything. It was all I could do to play and God, not the worst. Vomit all over my drums. It was absolutely the worst, oh. but, uh, made it through that. And then October came and we did this big five, six week tour around the U S it was amazing. Um, the music was outstanding. I got to play Matt Chamberlain parts, which was awesome. And K K reimagines stuff from the record. So we were doing some of our own arrangement stuff, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys in the band were amazing. It was a five piece band with, uh, violin, banjo and then daniel that uh plays bass synth guitar everything uh a cellist named takanobu who actually lives in atlanta um and we had a great time man it was a really really amazing fun tour i learned a ton um had a lot of fun got to see parts of the u.s i hadn't seen and yeah um and this music is like a eclectic original instrumental kind of through composed uh pieces it's right it's labeled as orchestral pop 
okay. which I would say is pretty accurate. The Sonderless record's a bit different. It's very keyboard heavy. He actually played a lot of Rhodes on that on the tour for that album. Hmm. He sings amazing. Uh, he's got an amazing voice. Um, but he does a lot of looping and layering of his vocals and of his violin. Uh, Mike, uh, tall, tall trees, the banjo player mm -hmm. actually is super percussive on the banjo. Like he's got a mallet that he'll bang on that with and, and start these, you know, generate these beat loops and stuff with his banjo. And, and he plays, a, a, he's an amazing player. Uh, he's school for bass. So he played bass on some stuff and we would, you know, funk out and have yeah. a great time with that. Um, uh, but yeah, K's stuff is labeled as orchestral pop. It's, it's hard to define. Um, it's hard to describe. Um, but it's, it's beautiful music and the songs are all really thoughtful and, and lyrically elegant. Like he's a great writer. He's, mm -hmm. it's obvious when you read his lyrics that he's well-read and, and educated and, and just like, um, poetic, you yeah. know, and, and, bit profound yeah uh, and it seems like from the drum chair it's a it's a musically challenging drum chair not necessarily technically challenging but just to find the right vibe for for that music from the drum chair seems like a fun challenge absolutely man yeah yeah it's not yeah oh, you're not playing a million notes a night um the ones you play count right a lot you yeah. know and it was it was fun for me to kind of find my place in that ensemble and the, the october heavy rocking you know we were we were full on all night mm -hmm. um except right in the middle where k we would leave the stage and k would just do a solo thing um he'd do like two or three songs solo and then we'd come back out and you know i'm i'm running a mixing board to my right that's got his violin loops and his beatbox loops running through that so i've got an in-ear in my right ear i've got my wedge over here with everything else i'm singing a little bit i'm trying to keep up with his loops and you know there's his loops are 98% of the time, like right on, but mm -hmm. there's a 2% that's like, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. This beatbox is like, it's off by like half a beat. So uh. you got to compensate and it's fun, you know, and it, it makes it engaging for us on stage. And I think the audience really enjoys that kind of stuff when that happens, you know, because right. K doesn't make mistakes, but when he does, it's like, it's, it's more comical and, and enjoyable than it is like you right, know right. it's never a tuning thing it's usually like a rhythmic thing and and i get to adapt and adjust to that which is really challenging and fun yeah no, um, no autopilot yeah <laughs> and we did a five-week tour in april that was vastly different uh we started the show around one mic and i was sort of set off to the back with just a snare and a floor tom and brushes and we did this sort of gypsy swing thing which is a, a big style for him. He loves that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we did like four or five songs that way. And the audience response was amazing. They really dug that. And then we went into the full kit show and, um, and did our usual thing. But, but yeah. it was, it's been neat to really explore different things with it, him. It's a cool thing to, to like engage an audience that way to kind of like unplug either at the beginning or, or the middle of an end of like a bigger show. Um, and and just do some some more acoustic like way pared down songs it it really engages yeah. the audience in a different way um one of my favorite bands is uh Dust Bowl Revival out of uh LA and I saw them play at the Earl uh a couple years ago and after after doing this whole big show uh Zach the the lead singer and guitarist just walked off stage and went and sat on the bar and sang like a couple of songs just sitting on the bar with his guitar and the entire crowd just followed him over to the bar 
and yeah. ate it up, you know? Yeah. We did that in April. We, uh, we literally came like it was the encore or whatever. And, and I brought a snare drum and a splash cymbal and we went into the middle of the audience and um, the banjo player played upright. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate played violin, nothing was plugged in and everybody like cranked their iPhone, uh, flashlights on and there's some <laughs> incredible pictures online of like us in the middle of this crowd on the floor doing you know some gypsy swing stuff and yeah. doing some really sweet songs and you know, like vocal harmony stuff it's yeah it's i think I, you were seeing it more and more yeah of uh, of bands i know Lyra lynn uh does a part in her show like that mm-hmm. um delta moon does it if uh if the if the room is right um, right. I've, I've played some gigs with Delta Moon and like Mark and, and Tom will actually lay their lap steels on a table. Like they'll kick someone off their table nice. <laughs> who are only too happy to give it up, you know, but they'll just sit down yeah. and, and like, you know, Frainer will come down and, and me or whoever the drummer is, will just bring a snare drum off stage and nice. just like sit around a little table. So um, that's a really neat trend. And I think that's, that's, uh, mostly due to, uh, you know, just the accessibility of artists now. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We're not so separated from the audience. Everybody's starting to integrate themselves. Right. And it's really cool. The one other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, Nucci's space and Camp Amped. Yeah. So tell tell people what those things are because it's a really cool program. Um, it is. It's an amazing program, and it's born of um, of all people, Jack Black. Thank you, Jack Black, for making School of Rock, um, or for being in School of Rock. I think when that movie came out, it um, it made it okay for your son or daughter to want to do music, and um, I, you saw them spring up all over the place. You know, rock camps and rock schools started to come out, and you know, you could argue that, well, that takes away from the, like the, the rebellious nature of rock and roll. And it, it, it sort of does, you know, there are parents that get way too involved in their kids' music career. <laughs> and it's the antithesis of what we all, I'm sure, um, experiencing, which was like, turn it down or what's your backup plan or right. that kind of thing. <laughs> now parents are like, we got a gig at eight o'clock. You need to get your guitar in the case. I'll load it up. You know what I mean? And you're like, whoa, you're way too long. But you know, I think that's, that's some certain cases, but because of school of rock camp amped, um, became a thing. Um, so Nucci space is a musician's resource center in Athens. It's the only one of its kind that I know of. It's a rehearsal space. Uh, more importantly, it's a, uh, suicide prevention and mental health awareness space for artists, musicians mostly, but but any artist. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, unfortunately born of a suicide uh, that happened in Athens in 1996. Um, Nucci Phillips, this young man, was a songwriter in town, um, facing a lot of the same pains that many artists face, and form, and he took his life. His mother. Um, started Nucci Space. She bought this building on on um, Oconee Street and started this resource center where uh, musicians basically have free access to mental health care. Um, you know, uh, whether that's a therapist or whatever, um, they get very inexpensive access to medical care, dental. Um, you know, 
you name it, a musician can go there and find a resource for it. It's mm -hmm. an amazing place. They host AA meetings, um, NA meetings. Uh, they, like I said, they're very inexpensive practice spaces. There's four practice spaces and they can get them for like seven bucks an hour. It's amazing. Wow. Um, and they rent gear and they put on shows and they're just community outreach is, is outstanding. So one of the programs that came around in 2008 was Camp Amped, and uh, it's a rock camp for kids, exactly what it says. And it's like 11 to 17 is the age range. Mm -hmm. And the kids come from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds, um, from, you know, the super, uh, not, uh, from basically, you know, low-income families to really high-income private school families, you mm -hmm. know, and everything in between. And they are all in this space. We take... 28 kids, break them into two bands a piece. Uh, they're all in different ensembles. There's eight instructors that are all professional musicians. Um, and we get to work with these kids intensely from nine to five every day um, on, on their music, on their life, you know, their life, uh, mm -hmm. their mental well-being, um, present them with different scenarios that they're going to come across in the music world that we just kind of had to find out the hard way. Right. It's sort of, um, I think what we're finding, because I'm starting to see kids that I taught in 2009 are now like having pretty interesting music careers. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with them just waiting, cutting through the bullshit because they already learned about that, you know, like, mm -hmm never pay to play never if anyone ever says sell these tickets and you can play at my venue skip that you don't need that gig you know what i mean like right. all that kind of stuff they got to just skip and get right to the good stuff which is you know i might play for free but i'm playing and you know i'm opening for this this bigger band and i'm getting exposure that way and and then they benefit from that so yeah. they're learning a lot in the music business world they're also learning how to put songs together work as a band um you know, that it's not all about you, that it's not all about showboating, that it's about the music, it's about the art. And it's, you know, that should be more what you care about than your own ego or whatever it is that right. drives you. And it's, it's, it's about navigating all these personalities that yeah, you've got to work with for better or for big worse. <laughs> right, right. It's the, it's the, the gig triangle, you yeah. know, the hang, the money and the music. And mm -hmm. if you do that, doing pretty good one right. out of three don't take that gig <laughs> <laughs> unless the money is unbelievable yeah that money can be really hot really hot man Oof. and then you can you know drum for the brothers in oasis or whatever it is that gig. <laughs> but uh but it's a great camp i do it every year um i try and do both sessions there's a june session july session um, my oldest daughter has done it for the last four years and loves it. Not by any pushing of mine. I just, she said, can I go do camp amp? And I said, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What does um, she play? Uh, she started as a uh, piano. Now she plays bass and sings great. She's knocked down so many socially awkward walls for herself. You know what I mean? Like yeah. being scared to talk to people or, uh, put your order in at a restaurant or get on stage, God forbid, and, and sing a song, like mm -hmm. all that stuff. She's, she's overcome through camp amped, awesome. um, made a lot of love. The youngest is going to be old enough to do it this summer and is really wants to do it. So I'll have both of them in there next summer, which will be pretty special. Cool. Uh, but it's just, it's great to watch these kids go through it. It's life changing for them. It's certainly life changing for us. Um, we all learn a ton and like, Dan Nettles, uh, guitarist here in town, Kenosha kid. He 
heads it. He's sort of the the lead leader, you know, <laughs> like right, the big right, chief. Right. Um, he organizes all of it and does an amazing job at that. And, um, you know, it's just, it's the best thing. And, uh, it gets my teaching bug out cause I don't teach high school drum lines anymore. Mm-hmm. I just get to do that. I teach maybe one or two private lessons, but I get to like really work with kids for a couple of weeks, which, uh, makes me really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man, man. Thanks so much for talking. Is, uh, no problem. It's good, good to catch up. You, you and I have, you know, obviously met before and, and hung a little bit, but, yeah. uh, but you know, our, our mutual friend, Ansley Stewart was so excited when, uh, uh, she found out I was interviewing you. She was like, you guys are just going to love each other. <laughs> oh, I love her, man. She's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's um, great. Well, cool, man. Keep it up over there and we'll see you at Hendershots before too long. I'm sure. It sounds great. Thanks a lot, Seth. All right. Thanks, Zach. Thanks again to Seth for that talk. I really dug it. Like I said, he's leading a different kind of musical life than we usually talk about in a much smaller town than we usually talk about. But it just goes to show how many different ways and places it can be done. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating and review there if you please. Speaking of that, I just want to thank everyone who has given us a rating and review on iTunes. So if you've been thinking about dropping us a line there, whether it's to shower us with praise or uh, give us what for, uh, I want to encourage you to go ahead and do so. It will be read and it will be appreciated. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his handling of all things technical. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.